Talk Herdy to Me. Taking a deep dive into Border Collies and other herding breeds, helping you play to their strengths, minimize their weaknesses, and understand their quirks. Listen in to learn for leading training and behavior experts on how to set your dog up for success, understand your urban herder more, and hit those training goals. Hello, and welcome back to Talk Herdy to Me, the podcast where we maximize their strengths, minimize their weaknesses, and understand their quirks. Today, we have the wonderful Amber Batson with me, who is a vet and a behaviorist, um, to talk about the importance of sleep and rest. So, hello. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's absolutely wonderful to have you. And I think it's a really important topic and something that people often overlook for fancier shinier more interesting training and behavior stuff um rather than exactly Um, because it's a time well although it's really interesting isn't it i bet most of us many of us if we picked up our phones right now and looked for pictures of our dogs we'd probably find quite a lot of them actually sleeping because they're pretty cute when they're asleep but aside from that like you say it's not exactly the most interesting of topics is it when we've got a dog who's not appearing to do anything of value yeah, and I think it's that that appearing to do anything of value that is the important thing because actually when you look into sleep and rest and everything that kind of comes with it and goes with it and the benefits of it, it's quite an interesting topic and there is like lots and lots of benefits to it. But what are kind of the main things as to why we would want our dogs to sleep and rest? I feel like it sounds like a silly question, but... <laughs> I think it's one of those things that people often overlook as actually what is the importance of sleep? We all need to do it to not yeah. feel tired, but what else comes along with getting that rest? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're dead right. And you know, it's um we do know, don't we, as humans, we know how important it is because we know that if we don't get enough sleep, particularly when that's cumulative, when it's after it's not just one night. And we know how we feel after not sleeping well for one night. That day we might be more irritable, we might be more emotional, maybe more hungry, we can't concentrate as effectively. But you know, it's okay because we'll just go to bed a little bit earlier tonight and you know and we'll be fine. But the cu- cumulative effect of let's say if that goes on for multiple days in a row, even weeks or longer, then obviously we all know how that will end up with us feeling. And obviously when we think about dogs, dogs need more sleep than humans anyway. They sleep differently to humans. And, you know, they do get the same benefits out of sleep that we do. So it will be things like, I mean, you know, the obvious thing is, and perhaps the first thing we should say is that, you know, and it's a very sad thing to have to say this, but studies have been done on dogs historically where we have prevented them from having any sleep, both in puppies and in adult dogs. And those dogs have all died. And that's a horrible thing, but that's what happens when we have what we call total sleep deprivation. And that's in mammals, which obviously we are and dogs are, it's absolutely essential for life. You can't survive without sleep. Now, if you're not getting enough sleep, but you're getting some sleep, you're probably going to survive, but it's going to have a really negative impact on your overall health both physical health and emotional health. And that will mean that you might just be about hanging on in there. You might be able to survive, but you certainly can't thrive. And what? so when we think about, gosh, well, why did they die? And it's a bit complicated, if I'm honest, because trying to keep an animal who needs to sleep awake is its own issue in its own right you know so if I'm going to poke an animal or kind of keep moving them or you know do something scary or possibly threatening disruptive in the environment in order to keep that animal awake then that's a stressor and aren't those animals just responding in the way you know to to the stressors that are keeping them awake rather than it being the sleep deprivation per se that's the issue and we can't really separate those two things out so that makes sleep deprivation studies really, really complicated, whether they were done on dogs or as they have been done a lot on those poor, long-suffering laboratory rodents. So we have to just acknowledge that, but you know, we've got better things to talk about in this podcast than that element of it. What is it that might make those animals get very sick or even die? 
Well, the main thing is that when you are sleeping, your body is in a regenerative state. So it's the time at which a lot of sugars and nutrients, so basically energy, can be used to repair parts of the body, including the immune system, the brain, uh, gut lining, all sorts of things, because it's a time when our muscles are still, we're not needing to use lots of energy and other hormones in the body to keep us moving around. So we can dedicate all of that at that time to the so various parts of the body that really, really need it. And so if we don't get enough, then it will have an impact on our ability to heal tissues effectively. And I don't just mean, you know, injured tissues, our gut, our liver, our bladder, everything is regenerating itself all of the time. So if we aren't getting enough sleep, then it can have an impact on our gut health. It could have an impact on our pancreatic health. It could have an impact on our brain's regenerative function, et cetera, et cetera has a big impact on our immune system. So we know the immune system function, the ability to function, deal with infections, deal with inflammatory problems in the body, gets worse and worse as we get more and more sleep deprivation. So there's some of the main reasons why we might die. Interestingly, another thing that happens is temperature control. This is something that's debated a lot in sleep physiology, as we call it, and what is sleep all about, particularly in the mammal, and a piece of research that was done back in Vienna a long time ago, 1800s, where they sleep deprived puppies, they showed that their core temperatures dropped and dropped and dropped over the first two to three days. And it was almost that hypothermia that killed the puppies, basically. And actually, if you've ever had a real lack of sleep, and maybe I'm unlucky or am I a lucky person? I don't know. To have been a vet, to have done on call, to have worked in environments in which actually I've worked all day, but now it's the night and I've been called out and I'm not going to get to sleep at all tonight and maybe tomorrow night as well. One of the things I really notice is how cold I start to feel after I've had even just one night without enough sleep, not even not any sleep, but maybe 50% less sleep. And so uh, there's something about sleep that allows us to bring our core temperature back up and maintain it at a normal level. And so, again, you know, if you think about individuals who can't um, are not getting enough sleep, maybe they start to feel cold. And later we might talk about, well, how might that manifest itself in some individuals as well? We can't learn so effectively because it impacts on the way our brain functions. Um, it impacts on our appetite. Often when we are sleep deprived, we feel more hungry. I could go on. But, you know, that they're some of the main things. And all of us who are interacting with dogs, working with dogs, having dogs, you know, in our lives to enjoy them and them to enjoy us would appreciate. We want them to be in their healthiest state and the impact that, you know, things like sleep deprivation will cause if, you know, if it's also impacting at a brain level and an emotional level. If you can't focus, it makes you more emotional, um, less able to uh, put in decent quality voluntary thought. So all of those things, health, emotion, it is something that we know that, you know, we couldn't, we just couldn't do without it, could we? And and it's not just a total lack. It's you know, fragmented sleep as a fragmented and an overall reduction in in total amounts. That's the issue. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like you just kind of touched on it there with different needing different amounts of sleep at different points. And I think this is the one thing that you can see a lot with puppies, and it's really evident in puppies of when they're tired, they start to be able to struggle to self-regulate and you get quite bitey behaviors quite barky behaviors and um a lot of people call they just turn into a feral little gremlin I'm like have they had enough sleep that is generally my first part of call is have they had enough sleep and then are they teething and then I'll then go into is it like they're trying to get you to play and things but majority of dogs who are puppies young puppies who get really bitey um, it can be kind of put down to the fact that they're overtired, they're struggling to self-regulate, they're kind of crabby and they start to to nip and and, and interact. They can't manage themselves as well with the interactions. Um, so obviously you mentioned that puppies, um, dogs need a different amount of sleep to humans, but how does the sleep level vary between puppies, adolescents, adults and senile dogs? What is the kind of the difference there or is there a difference? 
Yeah, we have a little bit of research, scientific research that's been done on this, and we could definitely do with more. And it is something that's receiving more attention now. So, you know, when we go back and we look at scientific research that's looked at dogs specifically as a species, a lot of the studies have been done on really small numbers, sometimes of quite specific breeds, like a German pointer as an example, but only maybe eight dogs in that study, and they were all adults at that time. Um, we're only now starting to appreciate perhaps its greater role in things like emotionality, learning and behaviour. And there was a really um, uh, interesting piece of work that came out, got published earlier this year by somebody called O'Tooley um, and Sarah Heath from Liverpool University, um, where they actually said, you know, that the amount of sleep um, is probably more important than anything when we're trying to address emotional issues in dogs. And so now that we're starting to recognise that, I think it will push a little bit more research um, but because we've got bits, but we could do with more, to be honest. Um, but we've had a couple of things. We've had some work by Santos. We've had some work by Rachel Kinsman independently who've looked at puppies. Um, and we know that puppies typically, obviously, it, they, they grow so quickly, don't they? Compared to human babies, they're changing yeah. really, really quickly. So, you know, certainly when they are two or three, you know, up to two or three weeks old, they're probably sleeping for something like 20 22 hours a day because just like human babies they basically they feed they you know drink milk and then they go back to sleep because the body has got this huge transition from being inside mum to being in an outside world and they've actually got to get everything going and of course puppies being born deaf being born blind being being born relatively unable to move not able to regulate their temperatures effectively those things make them incredibly vulnerable. They've got to catch up really, really quickly. And so they, the way they do that is they need more sleep so that when they're sleeping, all that energy is being put into developing those symptoms, in, in, those systems in the body, those body systems. But of course, by the time they are four or five weeks of age and their eyes are open, they've been open a little while, their hearing is improving all the time, their motor skills, their movement's improving a little bit. Then, of course, they are now in a position where they stand to sleep a little bit less. You know, so now we are kind of around about 18 to 20 hours sleep. As we move up to about eight weeks of age, eight to 10 weeks of age, then gradually, gradually we're reducing until around about 10 weeks of age, then we're looking at about 11, 12, 13, 14 hours of sleep, really. We're quite getting quite close to adult patterns. And the piece of work that was done by Rachel Kinsman, but it was a, a study that actually asked dog owners, dog guardians to report on their dog's sleep did try to compare the amount of sleep in puppies that were four months of age compared to adolescents who were around about 11, 12 months of age. But because it was an owner-guided questionnaire and it was owner's observations, and we as owners are sleeping for a fair portion of the time we think our dogs are sleeping, that's definitely not going to give us you know, 100% the right answers. What was noted was that the owner's observations of puppies at around four months showed around about 11 and a half hours sleep in every 24 and that the adolescent dogs were sleeping basically the same amount you know but some other studies that looked at the electrical activity in the brain happening during those time frames suggested that the adolescent brain by even a year of age is not developed enough and the electrical patterns aren't developed fully into adult patterns so you know actually we've still got further to go before and develop and change before we hit adulthood so is are our puppies at say four five months of age and our adolescents of maybe 11 12 months of age is that still representative of what they might be as adults and we still don't fully have that answer we don't um, we certainly aren't seeing that adolescents need more sleep, you know, than puppies do. When we think about humans and we get this impression, interestingly, that human teenagers need a lot of sleep, you know, that they're really lazy and all they want to do is sleep. But actually, studies have shown it's not necessarily the total amount of sleep that increases, but it's their circadian rhythm that changes. So actually, human teenagers, again, we've got to be careful because the studies have predominantly been done in the Northern Hemisphere in certain cultures, 
So is that true globally, you know, of a species that needs checking? Um, but actually, human teenagers tend to fall asleep much later, more like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And therefore, to get their total amount of sleep, they need to sleep till, say, 10 or 11 in the morning. They're not being lazy teenagers. It's just there's something's changed in their it's circadian rhythm. Yeah, totally different pattern. And the complications we've got with dogs is dogs are polyphasic sleepers. What does that mean? It means that unlike us, we're monophasic, unless you're Spanish um, and you have to always take an afternoon siesta. <laughs> you know, some cultures, we've maintained a sort of siesta pattern and we take two lit patches of sleep, but obviously still overall one main patch of sleep at night. Dogs aren't like that. They take it in poly, lots of phases. And typically they will sleep three, four, five, six times across 24 hours. They do tend to take a, a fairly longer patch in the middle of the day and a fairly longer patch in the middle of the night. Because for dogs in most cultures, but again, it might vary depending on where they are and what, what is available to them, um, then they tend to be more active at dawn and dusk. You know, So because of that, then they get the main body of sleep in the middle of the day and the middle of the night. And that might not fit our sleep patterns that well, really. And of course, it also means depending on we are when we are very active and what's going on in our whole household, um, if we are quite busy in the middle of the day, as an example, or perhaps the dogs are left on their own for a long period in the middle of the day, and maybe and we'll talk about why in a sec that might not support great um, sleep in some individual dogs. Maybe therefore they can't get hardly any sleep in their daytime, and it's all being pushed into their nighttime sleep. And how does that work for a species who normally would take an hour or two here, maybe three or four hours there, an hour later on, another hour later on, and then four or five hours overnight, you know. And so we have to bear that in mind when we think about dogs. Adult dogs, it varies. It varies just as it does in humans. Some humans only need six hours sleep overnight. Some humans need maybe net closer to 10 hours sleep overnight. So the rate... Is that you? What the ten hours? I, am, is I need a lot of sleep, otherwise my brain just it doesn't work, and it, I I have ticks. So if I don't get enough sleep, it's like my brain like misfires, and yeah. I struggle massively. Yeah, um, it's very individual, you know. And also, yeah. there might be other changes that drive it. So something that I've found really really interesting was I've had a, a baby, a child later on in my life. Um, the NHS liked to call me a geriatric mother, which was a, a delight. <laughs> um and um you know once i obviously babies are brilliant for disrupting sleep because babies are born um you know without the circadian rhythm and with totally different sleep patterns to human adults and they need to feed to get their energy they need to be feeding very very regularly so it's totally normal for human babies to be waking regularly throughout the night to feed um until they are at least 1 year of age now of course in our society we don't, that's really hard to support that, particularly for working mums, single parents, that sort of thing, you know. And so you, you end up being chronically sleep deprived, the majority. I mean, you might get the occasional person who gives birth to what we call a unicorn baby who sleeps through the night, you know, almost from birth. And that's how they are. And they do exist, unicorn babies. But, you know, they're, they're really, really rare. And it's not that normal. Because the baby's brain should be checking in all the time because they're really vulnerable. Um, where is my caregiver? Am I warm enough? Have I got enough energy? You know, and yet there they are, and they've had a little bit of nutrition, and now I can go back to sleep. And it's normal for the brain to be doing that. So obviously, for us to then be disturbed by that, it becomes sleep depriving. And that changes us as people. And I, you know, you end up in a situation, certainly I ended up in a situation where I could probably manage to work um, and, you know, to a to a good level of function. Um, for on only about three or four hours sleep every single night for the for two or three years as a minimum, you know, and and yet and there must be hormones that we produce things like oxytocin, yeah, which which help us with that. It's not ideal, and we still might feel poorly, etc. But we can cope with it better than we can at other times in our life, and I think that's quite an interesting thing in its own right, really. What, what might support us to get through that. But it is about getting through it, not it being this most wonderful, optimal time of our lives. Yeah. So 
Um, adult dogs, studies have shown the range, like you, like me, I might be able to manage nowadays on only five or six hours sleep. And maybe somebody like yourself maybe needs more like 10 hours, nine or 10 hours sleep. It's the same in dogs. And research that's been done so far does not suggest it's breed related. Um, it's not that certain types of dogs only need eight hours sleep and some maybe need 14 hours of sleep, as far as we can tell. You know, at the end of the day, a dog is a dog as a species and we are a species and then we have individuality within that, which obviously can be independent of our race or our culture or our breed, uh, if we're dogs. And um, therefore, some dogs might only need around 10 hours sleep in 24 hours and others might more need 14 or 15 hours, even as adults. So we have to get to know our individuals and know what's right for them. Does that change as they get older? Yes. But of course, what happens just like in elderly humans, most elderly dogs start to need a bit more sleep overall. But in part, again, it often is because some of their sleep becomes a bit more fragmented. Elderly dogs tend to um, wake more frequently in the night. And again, it's probably because they're becoming a bit more fragile and they need that check in. Where are my care providers? Where's the rest of my group? Am I safe? You know, do I need to wee more frequently, you know, as, as things change in my body, which happens to all of us humans as well. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> something joyous to look forward to for us all. Yeah, you're really selling this, uh, this getting old business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, overall, do they really need more sleep or is it perhaps that they're waking more frequently and for slightly longer at certain times of the night, which pushes them into looking like they need more sleep in the day? But overall, dogs, older dogs do need to see a bit more sleep. So maybe if they were 11, 12 hour dog, they now need maybe 14 hours. But maybe some of that's because it's slightly more disruptive sleep than it used to be as well. That's a really quick whiz through the transitions of sleep. But I think it's really important, like you say, to be aware, you know, of when we take a puppy into our home, that they do need a lot of sleep. And if they're not getting that sleep, it can impact on their health. But of course, it will also impact on their emotionality. And just like toddlers, we know with young children, they get really flipping cranky and narky and more likely to have meltdowns and chuck things around and, you know, be what feels like awful individuals. But of course, they're not doing it. It's not a conscious choice to be an arse. (laughs) It's, It's just the brain going, I can't cope at this time. I can't cope. But of course, as they get more stressed, if they've not been given the opportunity to, you know, the right support, and it's often social support and the right circumstances to aid that transition into sleep, then of course they're getting stressed. And as they get distressed and stressed, then unfortunately the cortisol, the stress hormone, one of the stress hormones that's produced, actually antagonizes sleep, stops you being able to get to sleep, you know, and then you can get through that period in that session And you might even come out the other side. We get babies who are cranky, 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 can't sleep, can't sleep, can't sleep. And then they're fully awake again and they seem absolutely fine for about four hours. And then we go back through the same phase again. Do we see that in puppies? Yeah, I believe we see that in puppies and young dogs too. You know, that ah, that, ah, agy, bitey, grabby, can't cope, shredding everything up, being like you said, I can't remember what your phrase was, but being a right um, gremlin, um, devil dog. And then maybe if they don't get the right opportunities, they actually seem to go through it for a period of time. But then some hours later, it comes back in full force because they're really overtired. Yeah, 100%. And like for me, whenever I'm working with clients, well, generally more complex cases where like I generally get called in for dogs who have like reactivity, but they're basically reacted to everything, cars, people, dogs, life, birds, aeroplanes, like pretty much everything in their environment is completely overstimulating for them. The first thing I look at is home life and rest. Are they actually getting enough rest? What does their home life look like? How many stresses do they have within the home? And although I've been called in to deal with external stimuli, generally, stuff outside of the home, I look at home life and we may spend the first two sessions maybe more thinking how we can create better habits better patterns to create a more well-rounded and rested dog within the home before we even start looking at external factors because a lot of the stuff with these dogs who have got really complex kind of 
like just struggle with everything it starts in the home and it comes back to lack of rest lack of being able to switch off lack of being able to consolidate memories and and form new ones and it it comes back to like this lowered almost lowered brain function because they're just running on empty yeah exactly and that's what the research um and it's sort of preliminary really at this point but by O'Tooley and, and Heath from earlier this year were saying exactly that you know, these dogs who are presenting as kind of reactive and, you know, um, however that might be, you know, sort of overly anxious, agitated, frustrated, fast movers, actually the majority of them need more sleep. Yeah. What they definitely don't, and they actually wrote this in the piece of, on, in the scientific paper, what they don't need is more exercise. And, and of course, we can all forgive ourselves. So this is not a judgment, you know, because we've all been there. When you've got a dog who appears to be, well, they are bouncing off the walls, you know, the, the obvious thing to do is, and, and it's the same with children, <laughs> I promise, um, you think, I know what I'll do, I'll just tie you out more. Let's go somewhere we can do more exercise, more intense exercise. Let's chuck that kid on the bouncy castle for longer, get them running around at soft play for longer. You know, and with the dog, it's let's go to the park and, you know, play more, play with more ball, walk for longer. And actually sometimes that isn't the answer. And that's actually what O'Tooley and Heath are pointing out in, you know, in their work, which was actually what they often need is more rest and sleep and less exercise. But more exercise is rarely the answer to the problem. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like for me, it was really evident in so I've been away working this last weekend doing workshops and stuff, and I've brought my young adolescent male who only hit puberty about three, four weeks ago. So he's still quite new to the whole testosterone fueled emotional <laughs> side of stuff. Um and we're staying down with friends on holiday, and he was obsessed with one of our friends. He's met him before, had no issue. Um, but he was like trying to lick and teeth chatter at him, trying to hump him and do lots of these kind of stereotypical sexually driven behavior. And it's not for him because it's wrong species and it's just not right. For him, it's an arousal thing and it's an overtired thing because he spent two days going into my car, having rest in the boot, then coming out and doing demos, doing little bits of of what I needed him to do, then going back into the car. We then stayed in a strange hotel where he's never stayed before. And it was a little bit of a disrupted night. Um, so like last night he was really struggling and I got to the point where I said I'm going to bed with him I said he's tired I tried to train him I tried to help with him and um, he just wasn't getting it he was getting more frustrated more irate more and he just he wasn't getting to that reset point with it yeah and I could see his whole face was going really pink and blotchy and I was like I need to get you out of this situation. Um, so I just went up to bed with him and we and it took him a good hour to settle in the room to bring himself back down to a point where he could actually go rest. And then this morning, he's a, he's a million times better and he's already managing himself better. He's still, there's a little bit of it there because it probably will take him a couple of days to kind of catch up. Um, yeah. But this is kind of, this is a dog who normally is absolutely brilliant, but off the back of a semi-stressful weekend, lack of this like, like this fragmented sleep, lots of fragmented sleep from him. He's now changed his behaviour and it's just, it's, he's not dreadful, but he you can see he's struggling with stuff that he normally would just go through with a breeze. Yeah, and exactly. he's quite a well-rounded and resilient dog generally. Um, and it's not he's being horrendous, he's just being a bit pesty and pervy. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And yet there are other people, and I'm sure there are people listening who have in the past had or perhaps even have now, Dogs where they do feel it's horrendous, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And the dog who is bitey and grabby and barky and shouty and nippy or spinny or, you know, faster. And, um, you know, or uh, maybe it's just scared as well. Intensity of fear responses to certain things. So they seem really, really spooked by lots and lots of individual things. And, yeah. and they seem like it is a nightmare. And so, you know, that's something that we have to think of. So when we think about, you know, well, actually, it's it's easy to say, okay, well, the recipe for that would be therefore to get them more sleep. But actually, it's easier said than done, isn't yeah. it? That's that's one of the problems we have for a whole host of reasons. Now, one of the reasons is is internal chemicals, as you just described with your dog last night. It took about an hour, and that's because cortisol 
um, as our one of our main, it's not the only one, but it's one of our main stress chemicals. Once it's been elevated in the blood, does actually take about an hour to be reduced in the blood. So there's been some inappropriate, I'm going to use that phrase, um, information given out about cortisol, you know, and this is the issue with social media and the World Wide Web, et cetera, et cetera. A piece of information sometimes gets out there and then it permeates everything. And actually, it's been said in the past that it takes 72 hours for cortisol to come down in the body. It does not. And we've got studies that have been done specifically even on dogs to show that's not the case. So it actually takes about an hour for cortisol to come down, but it will only come down if there's no ongoing stressors. That's the problem. So if, I don't know, I was, oh my gosh, what's that really loud noise that's going on outside? As, as Pat, some workmen start digging up the road outside our house, hotel, where office space, um, and the dog seems to be really agitated by that sound, that then they go away because it was a really quick job and everything's gone back to normal. It's going to take about at least 60 minutes for that cortisol level to come back down. It's certainly not going to take probably more than two or three hours. But if they do a bit of work and then they disappear and the dog's stress level, cortisol level is just starting to come down, but then maybe somebody comes into our house, somebody, you know, somebody knocks at the door, somebody we weren't expecting, you know, we weren't expecting. And the dog finds this really overexciting because they love all humans. And this is really exciting. And I don't know who you are. And they maybe spend 10, 15 minutes trying to get their attention, running around, picking up their toys, et cetera. Then, of course, their cortisol level has gone back up again. Then that person leaves. And we try and get on with whatever we were doing. And the dog's cortisol level gradually will be coming down. But maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, there's a new knock on the door and there's another parcel delivery and the dog's become aroused again. And we can see how those multiple stressors, which are interspersed throughout a day, particularly if they're closer together than every few hours, actually mean that the dog's cortisol didn't get to come back down. That's one of the problems we often have. So sometimes it can be really good to think about what for this individual dog is something they enjoy that they find calming. And it might be something that's related to food for some individuals. So it might be that they've just eaten because actually eating is something that impacts a lot on our chemistry. It also shifts our nervous system into the rest and digest phase anyway, the parasympathetic nervous system. So having some food in my tummy, because we all know if we're hungry, it's really hard to fall asleep anyway, because our body is actually telling us don't fall asleep. You need to address the sugar issue we've got going on here or the nutrient issue we've got going on here. So having a bit of food that was quite easy to acquire, but then maybe licking something, you know, or, you know, or chewing on something, maybe that for some individuals is a calming activity. Maybe for others, it's eating an amount of food, but then quietly using your nose to find three or four or five fairly easy to find other pieces of food. Maybe for others, it's got nothing to do with food. The thing that they really enjoy is just sitting next to their human and getting to quietly observe a quieter world, a quieter world, not necessarily a quiet world, because here we are talking about herding dogs and some of them have been overstimulated for a long time. And actually, when you put those dogs in what I call a vacuum, which is nothing, <laughs> you know, tumbleweed almost. But even there's no tumbleweed going across the desert. It's just desert. No sound, no movement, no smells. You know, and, and I know our world is never exactly that. But, you know, when it's a real limited number of stimuli, actually, that's really quite weird for some individuals and they can't cope with that. So it, it's individualized and it's a quieter world that suits that dog. So it might be that we've got an audio book playing in the background. Maybe we have got something on the television. Maybe we have got some things dotted around for them to quietly get up and explore at will when they're ready. So some of those dogs, it's just sitting with their, with their, human, with their human, but there is a little bit of sound present or there is a little bit of something on the television present. Maybe we're occasionally moving a little bit ourselves and we're winding, winding down. Or for other dogs, of course, it might be being groomed. For other yeah. dogs, it might be being stroked. For other dogs, it might be massage. For other dogs, it might be mouthing on a toy. Something that we can't ignore is that dogs are social sleepers in the main. Um, not all. But the vast majority of dogs, when we look at them in free-ranging society as well, they sleep in fair proximity to others, but particularly when they're young. So 
when we're thinking about young dogs, puppies, adolescents, they're still normally with their with their home group for a long time. And, you know, so research that has looked at that and the best we've got available. Earliest you le- you leave mum, dad, litter mates is around about five to six months of age. And normal common time to more leave is around 13 months. But there are a lot of individuals who stay with their core group for a lot longer. So that means we're going through puppyhood, through juvenile, into adolescence, still with mum and dad and some litter mates around, you know, basically. And so therefore, what do we do? We tend to curl up together. And so actually that has an impact because it means that I'm a bit drowsy. Yeah, I'm a bit drowsy. We can ah, quiet play mouthy together for a little bit. We might groom one another. We might get comfy. Then we might move a bit. Then we might get comfy again. And then as a group, there's sort of a shift into sleep rather than it be something that you do naturally totally by yourself. Yeah, you know, and, and that's something that we sometimes need to try and help provide. You know. That is basically what we did last night with Lenzo was I was like, I tried my best with him to keep him in the environment. We did a bit of settle training, which he normally does fantastically well. You, he just, sometimes he needs a little bit of support. You provide that support and he's like, oh, that's what we're doing. Oh, I can do that. Last night he was not having any of it. We even introduced food into it. And if I was sat there feeding, 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 he could cut up. But the second I removed the food, he was straight back on it. And I was like, this is not, a positive thing for anybody I was tired I've spent all day teaching he was obviously very tired and incredibly over aroused and so I just went right we're going to bed and I took my three dogs with me upstairs we went into the bedroom and my two girls just curled up with me and Benny he started moving and he was whining at the door and things Um, and I put on like an audiobook thing in the background because that's I fall asleep to murder documentaries don't ask (laughs) Um, so that was on in the background and every so often what was quite interesting after hearing you say that was Aoife, my Merle, was getting up and moving to kind of where Benny was, almost yeah. like she was trying to help. So he kept standing by the door and she got off the bed and went and laid in front of the door with him. And he did, but like I said, it did take a good hour for him to settle. And I think for him, he's quite used to that setup. So having the dog's relatively quiet room, me, yeah. that is a normal thing for him um, and yeah. I think it did help him but like you say a lot of collies can struggle with that contrast and I think this is where a lot of young collie puppies really struggle because especially if they've come from a um, farm environment but not not only any farm environment a relatively sterile farm environment where it's kind of the litter the mum in a barn yeah. kennel wherever yeah. with very other limited other external stimuli in the environment so things like um toys regular handling regular being let out meeting other dogs stuff like that if they're basically kind of left to their own devices the farmer comes in a couple of times a day to feed clean out and leaves with maybe gives them a little bit of um handling and stuff a lot of the time it's a very stark contrast of absolutely limited environment with my siblings to oh people come high arousal very exciting all this busy 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 back to very little kind of thing and that is their first learning and they learn to bite each other, they learn to chew, and they learn that people are super exciting. They then go into a pet environment where people are around all the time, and their first learning is people are super exciting. So you end up with dogs that are about people and they just physically can't switch off because of their first learning. And then you end up falling into these patterns of people creating dogs that either need to be entertained or they have to have like complete deprivation to sleep. And you get these dogs that are created or doing something. And you yeah. fall into that bad habit of the dog is either being entertained or it is fi- looking for entertainment or something to do, or it has to be shut away in a quiet room or a crate or wherever, playpen, whatever that you have. And this is where I think a lot of new collie owners or um, people who have not necessarily had a farm-bred collie before can fall into these really quite negative and impactful patterns of behaviour because although it's great that your dog is getting sleep in their crit, we ideally want them to learn to just be able to switch off in the everyday environment. Like at the moment, I have three collies sat under my desk (laughs) and they're just snoozing. Um, and that is just that is my expectation if you're kind of I don't mind if they get up and walk about if I get up and go to the toilet they can get up and move with me I don't care I don't expect them to be unconscious the whole time in my house but and they can move and get up for kind of freely as long as they're not pinging off the wall bringing me toys 
just being general nuisances. If they want to play with one another, they can. Um, if they want to do whatever they want to do, they can, as long as it's not like high impact and constantly at me, um, if that makes sense. And I think it's having yeah, definitely. fair expectations on our yeah. dogs. It's what we, you know, we, we often say, we have a phrase in English language, don't we? What we learn first, we learn best. Mm-hmm. And that is very true. And you know, when, so when, of course, what's already happening in the puppy environment is really relevant. And it's like, you know, as you've just described it, it's almost like a black and white image, isn't it really? Where we've, you know, where we, we've got this total mirroring, total opposites. We've got, you know, lots of, of dog social contact is where we get to do certain, you know, sort of, it's not all going to be calm because there's going to be play and things going on, but you've got that environment. And that's what provides our entertainment, other dogs, um, and then nothing else to do. The environment doesn't provide very much for us, but the other individual who does is this human. This human turns up with their smell and their voice and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that's super exciting because they're the bringer of good things. Then they go away. Then we kind of carry that on, really, as we move into a new home, because actually, literally from day one, what we are often wanting to do, and I understand it totally, I've been there myself, you know, is what we want to do is cute puppy, I want to play with the puppy, I want to play with the puppy, I want to play, and that's what I want to do. And then we play with the puppy, and we play with the puppy for an hour or two hours or however long it is. And then, you know, obviously puppy crashes because they're absolutely exhausted, you know, and that, and, you know, quite often, though, people then end up waking up the puppy because, oh, puppy didn't go to the toilet or maybe I've got to leave the house now, so I need you in a crate or in a car or in the kitchen, you know, and we can be quite disruptive to them. What we don't tend to help them to do is to be, you know, and it's going to take time because it's not going to happen immediately, is, is in effect what we're saying is around humans, be really super excited, just like you described, and actually that's it. The rest of the time is still boring. And actually that's still mirroring what perhaps was going on in their puppy life. But what it's lacking is, the social contact from other dogs in those circumstances where something else fills that gap for them. So what does fill that gap for them? Well, it's either us or something in the environment. So it's either chewing on the table legs or chewing up toys or shredding things up, or it's pestering people. And so have we really helped them what we learn first, we learn best to transition now to, okay, we've played a bit, not overexcited, you know, and, and what type of games have we played as well? That's really important because, you know, dogs aren't doing huge amounts of chasing after objects. They might play a little bit of chase one another, but of course it's rough and tumble predominantly and mouthy, mouthy, bitey games. Um, are we playing those with dogs or are when we say play, are we taking things out in the garden like frisbees, like toys, like balls, and we're throwing and we're throwing and we're throwing because we've somewhere in some of our cultures decided that's what play is for dogs. Is that play for dogs? Well, it's not what they're doing, social play. So what you know, when what we're just fueling is it's very exciting to be in the proximity of people, bring people bring us food. They bring us toys. They bring us excitement. And actually, there's a learning theory thing for them. We become conditioned stimuli. Our attention, our proximity, our presence means produce excited chemistry. And then, of course, when they're ready to go to sleep, it's almost like we'll just get on with it, dog. But of course, actually, they've evolved to get that in the proximity of others who themselves are starting to rest as a group. The temperature's changing. The physiology, the pheromones are changing. So are we just with our puppy play a bit and then sitting and allowing us to be there as they fall asleep? And then when they're waking up, it's a gradual wake up and doing some other not that exciting stuff together. But we're still together. And then we might build up to a little bit of play and then we'll do some other not quite so exciting exploratory stuff together. And, you know, what else are we providing in the environment for them to explore and do that's independent of us? Yeah, you know, gradually, yeah. gradually. And that then when it's sleep time, then we're going to have to probably be there to help them just to give them that I'm going to sit, you can rest, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, if we don't do that early on, it does become very, very hard for some dogs to to get that ability to to switch off. Yeah, um, I did my dissertation uh, last year and I did it on the age at which herding behaviours are first expressed in Border Collie puppies, ISDS registered Border Collie puppies and whether the rearing environment impacted them. And what I actually found was it wasn't the location of the rearing environment, it was what was in it. 
whether they had access to toys, whether they had regular access to human interaction. And this isn't to say that all farmers will breed horribly like pet collies. This isn't true. There are some fantastic farmers out there. Like there's some, like I tend to find, I know this is like a sweeping statement, but young female farmers seem to be incredibly aware of this stuff and they do seem to put a lot of stuff into their puppies. One of mine is a farm bred kennel reared pup. And she was brilliant, but the breeder was going in every day and sitting with her puppies, physically mm. sitting with them. Um, she was taking them out into the garden and it was they were a summer litter, so they would go into the garden, they'd play in the garden with themselves. She'd then go out and have a cup of tea and sit there for half an hour, 45 minutes. She'd then bring them in. And she was going out and physically sitting in with the puppies, not necessarily playing with them, but sitting mm. with them. Yeah. for there. Yeah, a couple of, t- two times a day for half an hour 45 minutes an hour or so and just taking a cup of tea and sitting with them and I think that made the massive difference to the way that Piper interacted with me interacted with our environment the fact that when we brought her home yes she was a working collie pup she was she was busy she was fantastic but she was also able to just sit on the sofa next to me and just flump um whereas a lot of working collie pups when they have this like real contrast they don't get to that point of, like you were saying, where they can just sit and rest. And like we're currently working with a couple of clients at the moment doing one-on-one via Zoom to help with rearing their puppies. And like, what do I do in this environment? I'm like, do nothing. Because he's he's like, do we do this? What do we do? What do we do? What do I do in these different things? What do I need to do? And I'm like, in every environment, make sure you're taking time to just sit and do nothing and just have the puppy sit with you you don't need to be looking for anything we just want puppies that kind of kind of just go okay then yeah i'm all right just doing nothing rather than them having nothing and then searching for stuff all the time i want them to kind of realize my owner's doing nothing i have nothing to do oh i'll just sit I'll just relax i'll just lie um and it's kind of creating those little habits in there and it's always the kind of one of the first things I focus on with whenever I get a new pup is bits of socialization, building positive associations with stuff, toilet training, because obviously I don't want crap in my house, and settling, just resting, doing nothing, watching the world go by, which is again something that's generally overlooked because people get their new puppies and they're so excited to teach them to sit and down and spin and and do all these fantastical things. But actually doing nothing is generally overlooked. And it's only when you're collie is like adolescent and it's become a bit of a nuisance that the fact they won't do nothing that then they I get a message and they're like oh well, what can I do and I'm like we, we can help you we can create strategies and scaffolding to support the dog to do these behaviors but if you start just doing little bits like sitting with your dog and just spending that calm quiet interaction with them you can build a really nice puppy quite quickly yeah Absolutely. And, you know, and, and there, there needs to be some choice, obviously. Autonomy agency is really important for dogs, particularly for emotional development, you know, and behavioural development. Um, so it's not about, OK, I'm going to sit here. You must sit here. Not that you just said that, but just to make that clear. No, yeah, you know, 100%. And so we often need to think also about the temperature, because if I'm sitting still and it's happening to me right now, to be honest, I'm starting to get a little bit cold. Um, because you, when you're not moving and you're not you're moving your muscles, you do get colder quicker. And then different individuals get that temperature change quicker than others. You know, and so whether we're a short-coated collie or a long-haired collie, whether we are an individual genetically who's perhaps got a little bit more body fat, perhaps we're a little bit more lean, all those sorts of things will impact on their ability to retain their temperature, which is different to us. You know, I mean, it's a huge problem when we exercise dogs because we, it's funny, I've watched two, um, been, been driving recently and I saw two separate examples of people running with their dogs. So people were out jogging with their dogs. And one were two younger ladies out running with a dog, a spaniel actually, and the dog was running behind the people. Both all both dogs were on lead, and this dog, this the tongue was lolling out of this dog's mouth, you know, as far as the tongue could go. And why is the tongue in that position? Because the dog is desperate to lose heat. When dogs start moving quicker than a walk. Just like us, if we start jogging, we start to get warmer really quickly through the muscle activity. But as humans who aren't covered in fur and who have more sweat glands so that we can lose heat in a different way, then we start to regulate our temperature using that method, our skin dispersing the heat and our sweat aiding that. that. 
Um, whereas dogs don't have that. You know, yes, they've got some very small amount of sweat bands and yes, they can produce a really, really small amount of sweat on their skin, but it is minuscule um, and not effective at temperature loss. So the main way they do it is through their respiratory system and they have to start panting using the mucous membrane that is the tongue um, in order to lose that heat. So, and I thought that, you know, that dog for me, the dog was really too hot. And of course, what's going to happen when that dog comes home from this run is what that dog's priority is going to be for probably at least half an hour, it could be longer, is to get their core temperature back to normal. So they're going to sit or lie and they're going to be very still when they do it for a period of time. You know, they've got to be still because they can't risk more muscular activity is that they're going to be panting. They they are not going to be resting. They are not going to be sleeping. What they're doing is lowering their body temperature. And of course, if that dog spends half an hour to an hour lowering their body temperature, and then actually they only have maybe half an hour before the before the owner goes back out again, well, then they they haven't had that hour and a half that the client's perception is that they were sleeping for. In comparison to that, the other person I saw um, was running along with, the, with their dog, and the dog actually started to slow down a little bit. And this individual stopped and the dog stopped and started sniffing something. And then the dog weed on that thing, as dogs do. And the person just stood there. Well, the person was still, but jogged on the spot. So they carried on doing their exercise, the human exercise, but they were static in terms of location. So the dog could do what the dog's need was at that time. Mm -hmm. And then they started jogging forward again as the dog started to move away. And that dog was panting a little bit but they did not have a tongue lulling out of their mouth. And I thought that's very interesting because it was basically the same time of day. It's not been a hot period of time here. We're recording this in August. And and although it might might change during this month, um, it's been quite cold in much of the UK and really wet, exactly. So it wasn't hot periods of of the day either. Very, very similar ambient temperature. And I was just like, well, you know, and it's anecdotal because it's two observations, but I just thought it was very interesting. My point really was the human could still get the same exercise, but could still attend to the animal's needs. And it's important that we think about temperature regulation, because when we sit down, we're probably going to sit somewhere that's going to feel warm and comfortable enough for us to sit. But what about the dog? Does the dog want to sit on the floor next to us? Is that comfortable? Is it warm enough? Is it cool enough? Have they got choice? So we kind of want two or three different, slightly warmer, different cooler, different um, comfort type areas around us so that dog's got some choice about where they want to be. And obviously one of them can't be five meters away from us or even outside of the room and the others be in the room with us because then we're saying to the dog do you want the warm bed under the radiator right now um which is out of of social view or do you want the cold hard floor that's by social view or of course for some people it'll be the other way around do you want to sit next to me on the warm soft sofa or do you actually want to be on a cold floor because if we are in a lounge that's got rugs or carpets down the cold floor might well be out in the hallway and the dog might be in a state of conflict about gosh well actually I'm quite hot what I want to do is go and lie on a cool floor and be still but actually I can't do that and be in proximity to my human Hmm. so it's about observing the dog and seeing what are their choices available and what choices are they making do they seem comfortable with those choices have they got positive body language are they able to relax? Are they able to kind of settle, move about freely? And well, how is it all going? And if it's not going well, then we clearly aren't quite getting it right and we've got to make some different arrangements. And I think it's, for me, it's it's quite obvious with my dogs, my long coats, they generally sit in the doorway where there's drafts and things okay. like that. Yeah. Whereas my short coat, she generally squirrels herself away into, she, she likes tight spaces and she likes soft, squishy. She's a little yeah. ball of luxury. Um, <laughs> she generally will tuck herself into a pile of blankets we've made for her by the sofa under the sewing box. That's generally her spot. Um, and that's generally through, that's where she chooses. We don't shove her down there. She chooses to go there. <laughs> Whereas my Merle, who's a long coat and she's got a very d- thick, dense coat, she's generally on the hearth in front of the fire, which is stone. Yes, it's stone. Yeah. Or she'll be in front of the doorway where the front door is, where there's a draft. Um, yeah. and But you generally never, ever, ever see Piper sleeping in similar places to Peefs and vice mm-hmm. versa. They they yeah. have very different needs. And we can come back from a walk and Aoife will be that tongue lulling out of the side, whereas Piper's just got a little bit of a pant on. Yeah. But I will say this, Aoife's had 
hip operations and things. So her fitness isn't the same as Piper's. Mm. Um, and she has a different coat type completely. And um, they're, they're different dogs and they have different needs. And there's, I think some of it is physiological massively. Um, but I also think some of it comes to preference because Piper will always choose tight little spaces. And it's it's kind of been a recurrent theme throughout her life. She We have a raised bed upstairs and Peefy sleeps on top of it. Piper sleeps under it. And there's elements of preference in terms of sleep space and things like that that come into it as well. And that's one of the issues, isn't it, when we only offer certain areas. So if we're working in an office um, that might be at home these days and actually really the only sleep space is underneath our feet um, Mm. or next to us on the floor because it's a small office space. Or perhaps we're doing long car journeys with them and they're therefore, you know, by law, they're restricted in a boot or in a crate, a restrained crate. Um, or we're creating them for other purposes within the house, or maybe that we're kenneling them even, of course. Um, you know, what, however we're doing it as working dog owners, pet dog owners, guardians, etc., we do need to think about that element of preference because if we don't meet their specific preferences, and some of it's sensory, and we don't really have, you know, it's outside the scope of what we can talk about today to really think about sensory pre- um, preferences. But that's a, a real truth, too. And it's quite interesting. I, I'll bring in something anecdotal about, you know, me, whether it's appropriate or not, really. But when I sleep, I like to have something over me. And I did say something. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not someone or some dog. And um, what I mean by that is so in the summer, if it is really hot, I still want to have a sheet over me. I yeah, find it weird. I, I find it find it weird if I haven't got something over the top of me. I don't like the sensation like that. That's my preference. So obviously mm. then I have to think about, well, have we got a sheet? or a very thin summer duvet blanket kind of thin blanket versus obviously in the winter a much thicker thing because I always want to have something over me. There are other individuals who actually don't like that sensation at all. And obviously for me, that's quite hard for me to appreciate that. I have an English bull terrier. He very much is similar to me. He likes to have pressure over his body. When I say pressure, but something touching him. So either it would be another dog, he would quite happy, be very, very happy if our other dog in the household would lie over the top of him. He would love that. Um, She's not very keen on that idea. So, you know, he likes a blanket or a duvet or something. And if he can't have it, as in we've forgotten or it's fallen to the floor and he can't readdress that for himself, he will dig up the cushions and he will make himself a tunnel. And you'll come down in the morning to a dismantled sofa because he's basically built himself something in which he can get under. And it's not about being under for him. It's about a bit like me in the sheets, something touching part of his body. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a sensory need. And so when we are sensory limiting in crates or particular locations or kennels, you know, rooms even, then some dogs might not get the quality of rest or sleep that they could get in other settings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you say, doesn't matter whether you are X type of short haired collie or Y type of of long haired collie. Um, You know, you, you don't always have the same needs. You know, it's very, very individual. Why, you know, X type of short haired collie versus B type of of short haired collie might actually have quite different preferences, even though their body types can be quite similar. Could be, like you said, location or cover or blah, you know, and it's sensory as much as other things. Sorry. Two long coated collies. And Peefy, there's a massive element of pain with Aoife. She's had, she has shocking hips. We've had them both done. Um, and she's always been very funny about touching and sensory and things like that. Um, so with her, she likes to be cool, but she generally likes to be aware and in, fully in control, able to sprawl out, lie on her back. That is very much her. And I think there's a massive kind of pain element with her. Whereas yeah. my other long coat, once he's cooled down, he is he likes to have contact with you. Even if he's just kind of sat next to you or sat on your foot or something, he is quite a tactile dog. And that is something he likes, that social contact. His mother, on the other hand, she likes pressure, but not necessarily actual social contact. She'll kind of, similar to your bull terrier with the cushions, she'll go along the back of the cushions and like kick them off the sofa. Yeah. And I might have literally just made that. And she'll squish herself into the tiny little corner on the L sofa and be surrounded by a little pillow fort. But it's yeah. that tight, contrasting, like really yeah. it's sensory. pressure almost. It's sensory. Whereas yeah. with Ben, he doesn't really care where he sits. As long as he has some part of him 
just touching you, even just a little bit. He likes to just have that little bit of connection. Um, And it's just different dogs, different needs. And although genetically they're very similar, mother and son, they have different needs because they are individuals at the end of the day. Yeah. So social needs consideration, what my social preference is, um, sensory needs consideration, what are my sensory, um, you know, requirements, um, what my temperature requirements, what are my comfort and maybe comfort's tied with sensory for some individuals, but you mentioned pain. So obviously that is something that we recognize well in veterinary medicine, of course, is that when dogs have got pain anywhere in their body, they don't sleep as well, which of course is exactly the same in humans. And you mentioned hips. And of course, everybody's mind will always, first of all, go to musculoskeletal pain. Have they got elbow pain or shoulder pain or hip pain, back pain? Um, But actually not all pain, of course, is in the muscles or the skeleton or the joints. So we might think about a dog who's actually got dental disease or maybe a dog who's got an ear infection or maybe they've got skin pain from a skin problem. Maybe they've got cystitis or pancreatitis, so an internal organ that's giving them some intermittent gripe so it's always really important if we've got dogs that we're seeing you know m- finding it hard to make choices about sleep or unrest um yeah. you know or we're not quite sure that we do think about pain and not just pain in the musculoskeletal system but could there be pain elsewhere in the body too yeah and i think with Eva, before we got her hips addressed like addressed we tried to manage it through hydrophysio and medications and things like that and we just couldn't get on top of the pain and one of the massive drastic changes we've had since we've had the operations is the amount she sleeps she sleeps a lot less um and I think and also how active and busy she is in terms of I think when she was in a lot of pain it was much more fragmented sleep so although it looked like she was sleeping more um it was fragmented because she would get up and move multiple times throughout the night um because I think she'd get stiff and ouchy and it's just not nice for her Mm. Um, as well as I think there was elements of actually moving caused her pain so although she may look as though she was resting she wasn't actually it was just she didn't want to move because it hurts when she moved Um, and this was a massive contrast and I and she's going to be the naughtiest dog I ever own because (laughs) um, she was it was like having an old dog when she was about one two three she was like having a 14 15 year old dog she just slept all the time she she'd have like manic little moments which I think was a mixture of build up of pain and, and and everything and it was just kind of that release and then she'd go back to Oh, this really hurts again. Um, and yeah. then we had the operation and she does stuff and half the time she's doing something bloody naughty and where they're going, oh, she couldn't have done that before. So she's disappearing <laughs> off after squirrels and we're like, so she will forever be the naughtiest dog I will ever own. Um, but we love her for it. But you're happy for that. Absolutely. We'll replace the word naughty does it. with autonomous. Unless she does it in front of clients <laughs> and then I'm like, you bloody dog. Um <laughs> But yeah, but when we say naughty, I mean it in like a playful way. She's, yes, she's, yeah, yeah she's no, just living I mean. her best life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah but exactly. Pain is really you. important. It's very nice that people misinterpret sometimes what resting and sleep are. You yes. know, people think the dog is, often we hear my dog's sleeping more, but actually what they're doing is they're withdrawing more. They're not necessarily sleeping more. Sleep means their eyes are closing. You know, the body is actually relaxing. And a lot of the time they're lying flat out, going into partial REM periods where you might get that paw twitching, the tail moving, etc. And then they might move a bit more upright again and curl around a little bit more. You know, but overall, the body is very soft and relaxed. So if we've got some uprightness, a bit of rigidity, you know, and definitely we've got our eyes open, partially, fairly partially open, then that dog is not sleeping. That dog is still And then we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that dog still? And like you say, sometimes that's pain. So hopefully that's lots of things to consider. Um, And the more we can get natural patterns than, you know, normal patterns for that individual, the better it's going to be behaviourally and health and and physically health wise. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you coming on. There's been some like fantastic little nuggets for people to take away from that. And hopefully it'll give people food for thought and actually be able to look at their dog and think, actually, is my dog getting enough sleep? Am I providing enough options for my dog? Is there something that I might need will need to change to help my dog thrive a little bit better? Um, uh, but if people want to get in touch or... um. 
learn about anything more that you do, you have, you're just on Facebook, aren't you, with Understand Animals? Yep, that's right. I have a business page. You'll spot my bull terrier. Um, and there's also um, exploring a wall in a castle. And there's also um, some pictures of some horses there too. So if you spot horses and a bull terrier together, then that's definitely my Understand Animals Facebook page. And I tend to keep, you know, um, fairly near the top of the post. There will normally be a what's coming up sort of post for if you're interested in in a webinar on a particular subject or something like a course. We have um, our Aggression in Dogs for Professionals course that's starting probably for the final time in its current format um, in the autumn of this year. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested as a professional to learn more about how sleep plays a role in things like aggression, among other things, then that's there. But yeah, hopefully just generic advice for whether you're professionals or guardians um, of working dogs or pet dogs. Hopefully you'll find something of interest there and lots of references and books and other resources always shared as well. It's been a pleasure, Ellen, to have been invited to chat about it. It's such a topic, like you said right at the beginning, that can be easily underestimated in its value. Yeah, and um, it's such a simple thing that we can do to make our dogs' ha- lives happier and healthier. 100%. Thank you so much for coming and um, I'll see you guys next week. 